0: Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick.
1: The world is increasingly in technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle.
0: Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Painting and taking on all the plates to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Succinize and do their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt to grab a shovel and uh, there are lots of topics and legal issues that we cover on Tech Dirt pretty much all the time, uh, but One that uh, I think we've probably talked about more than anything else over the many years TechDirt has been around is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, often called just Section 230 or CDA 230, or if you're really knowledgeable about these things, just 230 by itself. Uh, (laughs) That is the law that has been so key to creating the open Internet that we know and love and in protecting free speech on the Internet. Uh, Uh, Even though we've written about it hundreds, if not thousands of times on TechDirt and spoken about it many times on this podcast, in case you are somehow new to all of that and don't know, uh, in a very brief form, CDA 230 is a very, very short law that basically says that an internet platform or intermediary cannot be held liable as the speaker for content created by someone else and that the decisions made by an intermediary or platform to moderate that content doesn't change this fact and somehow add liability for content that maybe wasn't moderated. So basically, in short, CDA 230 says that you don't get to blame the platform for someone else's speech. Uh, It's... uh, the uh, laws that like this that make sure that liability is placed on the person who actually said the things that are arguably violating a law. Uh, CDA 230 is why Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and others can actually let you post your own content. Uh, without it, there would be a massive risk of liability and all sorts of lawsuits targeting the companies who probably have more money than the speakers. It's also. Uh, why TechTurt can actually have comments and why we were not as afraid of being sued over those comments. Uh, so, uh, And also, it's worth noting that the law is very much under attack today, and uh, on top of that is also a law that is widely misunderstood. Uh, Professor Jeff Kossif has just come out with a very well-timed book entitled The 26 Words That Created the Internet, Which he describes accurately as something of a biography of CDA 230. Uh, I will say that as someone who has read basically. Everything anyone has ever said about CDA 230 and who talks about it all the time, uh, I still learned a ton uh, from this very uh, in-depth and and entertaining and well-written book. Uh, It goes very, very deep into the details of the various cases and people who shaped CDA 230 and with it, the internet around it. Um, the book itself runs through four different sections on the creation of 230, the rise of it, the, uh, I would say, unfortunate gradual erosion of the law, and also what Kosov believes is the future holds for this fairly important law. So uh, Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, thank you for writing this book. Uh, Even you acknowledge at the beginning of the book that it may seem a little weird to be writing an entire book about a law within a law within a law. (laughs) Um, What made you think to focus on what is really sort of in in what you focus on, you know, sort of one line buried deep within a cascade of laws?
1: Yeah, so it was a tough book proposal to write, <laughs> to <laughs> convince publishers that this weird law that you probably haven't heard of is worth writing a book about. Uh, but fortunately, Cornell Press uh, was very willing to hear my argument and uh, sign the the book contract with me. Uh, the reason that I wanted to write about this, it really goes back to my a few of my previous careers before being a law professor. I first was a journalist at a newspaper covering technology, really at the end of the dot com, boom slash bust. And then I was a lawyer after being a journalist for a lot of news websites and social media companies that relied on Section 230 heavily. Um, One of my mentors used to call the letters that we would write uh, in response to complaints to about user content, uh, pound-sand letters, Uh, and they were about (laughs) one page long, and it basically just recited the 26 words in Section 230, Mm -hmm. and uh, it really got me thinking, how could most of my clients exist without this law? And I think theoretically they could, but they would either have to charge massive fees to be able to moderate every bit of content before it's posted, or they would end up having to have huge delays before users could post their content. It would, it would really look more like a letters to the editor page than right. sort of the free speech forum that we saw today. So um, at, at its 20th year, so in 2016, is when I really started thinking, we need to document this law, because not just for the impact it's had on user content, but for future technology policy, because there really hadn't been a, a whole history written about it. And I started seeing, you know, there are a lot of the documents from the early days and from its passage that were disappearing a lot were found one on an archive.org page of a GeoCities page. Um, hmm. I, uh, and frankly, some people who were involved in the passage of the law and cases leading up to the law had started dying. And I started <laughs> realizing, you know, that, that it's really important to have a written history of this incredibly important law.
0: Yeah, and um, and as I said, I mean even even for people who think they know uh, all about the history of the law, there's so much. You go very very in depth and and in in really great detail, um, and it's it's really well organized and, and the story is very compelling. It is a, uh, a difficult book to put, put down. I, I will admit that. Um, for some of the books that I may talk about on this podcast or, or, or write about, I will tend to skim parts of them, uh, and I also thought that I would probably end up skimming this book, and I did not, <laughs> because I sort of I every time I tried to skim, I would just get sucked in and have to read every every word. So I did read the the entire book. Uh, Excellent, <laughs> because it's it's it is it is very good and very detailed. So you know a, a lot of the stuff, and and some of this you know. Know, the the really early stuff, some of it, you know, I wasn't that aware of at the time. I Tectroid itself started, depending on when you count, sort of ninety seven, ninety eight. You know, after CDA had passed, but before anyone seemed to care about it. Um, and you know, part of what's interesting to me in the book is, you know, starting with the with the history. I mean, you go way back. I mean, everyone talks about. The sort of two big cases that led up to the CDA, which are the Cubby versus CompuServe and um, the Stratton Oakmont Prodigy case. Um, But you go back even further and talk about like concepts around distributor liability with like bookstores and and things like that, that, you know, that really played into – the thinking behind all of this. Um, so I'm not going to ask you to sort of repeat every case in the book, but I, I think it is important to know how much, you know, how there were these other laws beforehand that that were important to think about. So things like Smith versus California is a key part of the book and sort of shows up throughout the book in, in terms of the thinking. So can you talk a little bit about some of those early cases?
1: Yeah. So I think really the most important case that influenced the passage of Section 230, other than the Cubby and Stratton Oakmont case, was this case, Smith v. California. It was a 1959 decision by the U.S. Supreme Court. And it, it's this fascinating case that, I mean, I when I say that I got obsessed with getting every detail, I was getting <laughs> the draft registration of the person involved. It involved a man who at the time was a 72-year-old Polish immigrant named Eliezer Smith, who ran a a newsstand in what was then a seedy part of L.A., but now is a really hip part of L.A. <laughs> um, and he was arrested for selling a book, which I actually do have a copy of, that at the time was deemed obscene under the Los Angeles obscenity ordinance. Uh, it's actually just a really terrible book. Uh, it's, <laughs> and By today's standards, it would probably be like a soap opera, what you you would see. But it it did have some erotic descriptions, and the LAPD believed that was obscene. So he gets arrested. Um, He's convicted in municipal court and sentenced to 30 days in jail. Somehow, one of the most prominent First Amendment attorneys, Stanley Fleischman, ends up representing him pro bono. And the case goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. And Justice Brennan issues an opinion that says... The LA ordinance is unconstitutional because it applies regardless of the state of mind, the cienter of the defendant. So it, it wasn't casting judgment on whether the book actually was obscene. It was just saying that what Justice Brennan said is the law needs to have some element of mental state uh, because there's no way that you could expect a bookstore to review every single book. But he didn't. He didn't specify what that mental state was. So, we would have cases over the next decade or so where the general standard became whether a book whether a bookstore or other content distributor knew or should have known of the content. That's the only way they could be liable for the speech of others whose speech they distributed uh, that they distribute so uh it became this new or should have known standard, and that's how we got to the cubby and stratton Oakmont cases where the courts had to figure out, do we even provide this limited First Amendment immunity? And what they ended up saying is CompuServe does receive this limited immunity because it allows users to post whatever they want and doesn't take any steps to moderate content. uh, While Prodigy took steps to have family friendly services had user content policies contracted out with moderators. So prodigy becomes like a publisher. And so it's strictly liable as if it were the speaker. And that's where that's where the members of Congress got involved. And it gave it was actually a fairly um, good opportunity for them because they were able to say, you know, "We, we have this problem here where these online services are discouraged from moderating and we need to fix this now um one thing that often gets left out of the history of all of these cases is that the judge who ruled on stratton oakmont was really abysmal uh he, <laughs> yeah. he, he was, he, you make he, that clear in the book yeah i mean i i i, I fortunately I, I i stick to what is in the public record but uh he was right. censured for making racist comments to an attorney before a civil trial and Two years later he issues this ruling that's not really supported by any other court and he just decides I'm gonna I, I'm gonna set these new rules for the internet and again it's just a single state court judge on Long Island no. not binding on anyone but this got so much attention that it it's really it, it is what prompted Section 230 to be passed, so much so that the conference report even mentions that they're looking to overrule Stratton Oakmont, um, which doesn't even make sense because it's not finding precedent. But, right. <laughs> they, but, that, but it, it's just fascinating that this one judge was able to have so much impact on the Internet. I, I, I think that had he not ruled on that case, I don't think Section 230 ever would have been passed.
0: Yeah. And I mean, to, to be honest, I mean, that's sort of a theme that that goes throughout the, the entire book is how much of what, you know, of, of how this history came about is, you know, so dependent on like the decisions of just a few people and that sort of all fit together and all could have gone in very, very different ways. Um, you know, the idea that that I sort of Section 230 like protected Internet was inevitable um it appears very, very fragile. <laughs> well, a-
1: a- absolutely. And even the interpretation of Section 230. Yeah. Um, the the first case to interpret Section 230 was Zarin versus AOL. And this was the yeah. f- first time that a- a- no no one had – Section 230 was in the Telecom Act. It was part of this 2,000-page bill. Uh, Nobody really paid attention to it. I can tell you that other than a few passing references about Section 230 involving FCC regulation, there was not a single media mention of Section 230 during its passage. Um, AOL, to its great credit, hired an amazing attorney at Wilmer, uh, his name is Pat Carome, who uh, was the only lawyer at the time who thought, hey, let's give the Section 230 a shot um let, let's make this argument so this was a case where um it was it's called Zarin versus AOL and there was a man who someone we still don't know who posted right after the Oklahoma City bombing posted on an AOL message board these really crude advertisements about t-shirt for t-shirts that mocked the Oklahoma City bombing mm. uh he ended up getting tons of death threats uh angry phone calls so much so that he went on psychiatric medication so he sues AOL, and so AOL hires Pat Carone, Uh and you would think that AOL would try to make a, uh, a First Amendment argument, but the reason why they that wouldn't really succeed is that Zarin had repeatedly called AOL, begging them to stop these posts, and AOL failed to do so. So Pat Chrome said, let's try this; um, these 26 words in Section 230 and see if it'll work, and he was so fortuitous because the district court judge is uh, T.S. Ellis, who's now Mm -hmm. most known for presiding (laughs) over the Manafort trial. Um, And he is a very, very literary and very thorough judge. And Mm -hmm. he, he, even though there was no binding precedent at all, he said, you know, I, I I think he's right. And he dismissed the case, but then uh, Zarin appealed and it goes to the fourth circuit, which you would think they're going to, say this is nonsense. Nobody knows what this law means. It's just about um, it's just about making sure that online services aren't publishers, but they can still be treated like distributors, which is what Zarin argued. But in another stroke of luck, the chief judge of the Fourth Circuit is on the panel. His name is J. Harvey Wilkinson. He's a conservative Reagan appointee, but he also used to be a newspaper editor, mm-hmm. and he has a very strong First Amendment streak. So he writes this opinion with flourish about free speech and how Congress wanted to set the Internet apart and how the Internet, uh, how expression would be chilled otherwise. And uh, I I think most likely there's no way to know for sure. But I I think there are many judges who would not have taken (laughs) that route. And if they were the if another appellate court were to be the first appellate court to interpret Section 230, I think the history would have looked very, very different.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, that becomes very, very clear in the book, um, more clear than I necessarily had <laughs> realized before. I do want to take one quick step back. I mean, you mentioned it, in, in what you were just talking about about you know how much Section 230 really sort of flew under the radar when it when it became part of the law. I mean, it was a part of. Um, the communications uh act of of 1996 which was a big deal that was fought over and there were all different elements of it um that that everyone was more focused on in terms of you know telecom policy mainly um and there were sort of two competing approaches uh to to dealing with the internet and uh potentially bad content uh, loosely defined on, on the internet. Um, and those, you know, sort of one from from the House, which was Wyden-Cox's bill, which became Section 230, uh, and one from the Senate, which was Senator Exxon's bill, um, that was basically said it was illegal to um, send offensive content to people under the age of 18, right?
1: Yes. Yes, uh, that's exactly right.
0: And, uh, sorry, sorry. Go ahead.
1: Yeah. So, so um, the the way that it worked, Exxon really it, he was very concerned about. He was a conservative Democrat from Nebraska, and he was very concerned about children being able to access cyber pornography. This, right. this is actually a term that was the cover story in Time Magazine in 1995. Exxon actually carried around a blue binder filled with pornography that was printed <laughs> off the internet and showed it to his to to his colleagues and so he he took a very punitive approach and it should that, it should
0: just one quick thing it should be noted that 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 cover story on Time magazine was later completely debunked and and was seen to be kind of uh, incredibly bad reporting based on, like, an undergraduate's uh, non-peer-reviewed study. But anyway. Absolutely, but that doesn't matter in Washington. <laughs>
1: no. so, um, so so he gets this attached to the Senate version of the telecom bill. Right. And Wyden and Cox come after him, and they're working with uh, the Jerry Berman at the Center for Democracy and Technology, AOL, Prodigy. Uh, a little bit with Microsoft, and they they come up with this alternative saying, let's empower the users, this concept of user empowerment, Um, and you empower the users through the companies. So if a company decides to take to not moderate content and allow all this smut online, the users will the theory is the users will eventually walk, because they they don't want to expose their children, they don't want to see that. And so, so that was the Cox Widen approach. Now, there are two sections to there are two primary sections to section 230. It's about 800 words altogether, but the two sections are C1 and C2. Uh, C1 is the 26 words, which uh, so, talks about no provider. Or a user of an inter- interactive computer service shall be uh, treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider, and that's the that that's what the book is primarily about because that's what most of the cases get decided under. But there's a right. second section, C two, which actually used to be in one of the earlier versions of the bill. It was combined in the same paragraph as C one, then it ended up getting broken out, which talks about uh, uh, allowing the platforms to exercise good faith moderation after efforts for various types of content, including anything that's otherwise objectionable. And if there was anything that got attention during the House floor debate, it was that provision. Nobody paid attention to the 26 words whatsoever. Um, And there's a bit of a myth that nobody knew what it meant. Um, What I found just from interviewing everyone at the time is that The people who were drafting it knew what it meant, and the people who were involved in (laughs) uh, in in advocating for it they knew what it meant. But the there was absolutely no media coverage. There was no real opposition to the to the twenty six words at all. Um, And the the main concern of the family rights groups was that the Exxon amendment get into the telecom bill. And then what ended right. up happening at the conference committee is that both the house and the Senate versions ended up in the telecom bill.
0: Right. And then the Exxon version was found to be unconstitutional fairly quickly, uh, after the, the bill became law and leaving just section 230. That's the only part of the communications decency act that survived, right? That's
1: exactly right. Yes.
0: So you know one of the things that I found found interesting is you know in uh 1996 with the passage of the uh, the larger uh, Telecommunications Act of, of 1996, John Perry Barlow wrote his famous uh, declaration about cyberspace and you know how you know we we don't uh, follow your laws and and talking about free speech and all that the internet enables and yet he was he wasn't commenting about CDA 230 either even though that's really a big part of what made what he said. Accurate. He was he was sort of responding negatively to other aspects of the of the Communications Act and what he thought was going to be an attack on the internet. I I, I find that that connection somewhat ironic. I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. He yeah he was he was talking about the Exxon Bill yeah. primarily, and yeah, I, I think that that really set the stage for this broader interpretation of Section two thirty was his, his really vivid articulation of why the internet is different.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, one of the things that, that I've sort of thought a lot about is, and and I've maybe argued with some people about this is, is, you know, whether or not the internet really is different. Uh, I mean, I think you make the case fairly compellingly in the book that, you know, CDA 230 is designed uh, you know, with this idea that the internet is different and a lot of the interpretations around it are that, you know, the internet is different. You know, I've argued in the past, uh, perhaps incorrectly now that I've read your book, um that you know CDA 230 I mean I've even argued many years ago though I I no longer agree with this that we shouldn't even need a CDA 230 because it should be self-evident <laughs> that you don't blame the platform uh for the for the, the speech of the, the users but I you know I think over time what we've seen with the various cases and and the the various attempts to to chip away at 230, that, that it is, you know, some of these issues are a little bit more difficult. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that your book also does is very clearly show that many of these cases are not easy calls. Uh, they've worked out the way they have, and the interpretation of CDA 230, uh, it, you know, has become the way, way it has. But, but, um you know a lot of those cases are, are are actually really difficult uh and some of them feel like you know someone has obviously been wronged uh and it's not entirely clear that there's there's a reasonable remedy for the person who's been wronged because of CDA 230
1: yeah I, absolutely it's um I, now i i think um the case that really was the most interesting to me for the whole book really gets at that point and that's the Batesel versus smith case yeah um so and i I spent a lot of time talking with ellen Batesel and actually the reason why i even wrote about it was i asked chris cox who's one of the two authors of section 230 you know what how do you think it's been interpreted and he said well the zarin case that's what i intended because that involved aol which had this massive amount of content And he said but you know i think." that some judges he, i think he used the phrase judicial embroidery on the statute <laughs> and i said well what's a what's an example and the first thing he said was batesel
0: right.
1: and uh, the case of ellen batesel she she was a, an attorney who had represented a lot of uh, art galleries and museums she moved from california to north carolina and she hires a handyman the work doesn't turn out that great they get into a payment dispute uh, she claims that he also asked to pro- show around his script to her clients. She didn't want to. Um, And what results is him sending an email to a nonprofit in the Netherlands called the Museum Security Network, which um, operates a website and a listserv. And in the email, he says, you know, I just did this work for Ellen Uh, Batesl. She said that she was the descendant of a Nazi. I think she was him. I think she said she was Himmler's granddaughter. And she also had a lot of really fancy artwork on her walls, basically implying that she had stolen Nazi artwork. Uh, The operator of the museum security network makes a few modest edits to the email and posts it on the website and also sends it out to the listserv. And uh, soon enough, Ellen Bates starts losing clients because she represents a lot of uh, art galleries and museums and right. they don't want to be associated with someone who has stolen Nazi artwork. So um, she ends up suing and there's a lot of procedural stuff I won't go into, but uh, the case get, ends up getting bounced back uh, from the Ninth Circuit to the district court. But the Ninth Circuit's most important ruling there is uh, that just because this one guy this one uh, listserv operator just made some edits and forwarded it along, that doesn't prevent Section 230 from applying just from the pure text of the statute. And uh, what Cox says is, you know, this is very different. We're dealing with a single individual who's making the conscious choice to forward along content, not AOL, which has all these bulletin boards, uh, and I spoke with Ellen Batesel about it, and she said, You know, I really think Section 230 is unfair. Obviously, that's kind of, <laughs> I, you wouldn't <laughs> expect anything different. But right. I asked her, You know, do you think that Section 230 is the reason why you were harmed? And she paused for a second, and she said, No. She said, You know, he was in the Netherlands. There's nothing, there's no reason that he would have been researching US telecommunications law when he is making these decisions and can I curse on this? Sure. Okay. So uh, she's, she said probably the most insightful thing that anyone said to me during the entire time I reported this, which was people are going to be assholes. Mm -hmm. And I think that's right. I mean, I think a lot of these section 230 cases, while while some do involve sort of the negligence or arrogance of some of the platforms, a lot of them we we need to also remember come down to the individual use person the posters or the person who's right. causing the harm and there are a lot of assholes and you're that's I I think Section two thirty might provide a better mirror to these people but it, it doesn't it isn't necessarily what causes the people yeah. to cause this harm
0: yeah I mean I mean that that gets into a topic I've been thinking a lot about lately I mean a lot of the you know now that the narrative certainly about technology and especially internet platforms has has turned from from being positive to being very very negative you know how much of it is is actually just a a reflection itself of humanity and sort of the you know humanity is not always great (laughs) and and there are a lot of assholes out there and and suddenly in sort of Recognizing that you have a lot of a lot of assholes, some of whom are very loud, uh, and uh, you know, people are sort of struggling with how to deal with that, and and sort of the easy target for that is blaming the platforms uh, for enabling the assholes to to reach a wider audience to some extent, um, and you know, it's I think that's part of the reason why 230 is so much under attack these days because people are sort of you know. Reasonably upset about about a number of assholes online, uh, and and then sort of trying to figure out what to do about it, and and feeling that two thirty is is part of the issue that is uh, stopping their ability to do something about it. Which I, I you know, I, I think it's 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 kind of a strange situation where you you know you sort of blame a law for stopping platforms for stopping humanity from from being jerks. (laughs) Uh, Because humanity has a pretty long history of including lots of jerks. (laughs) Prior to the internet itself existing. And I'm not sure that um, forcing third parties to hide the um, bad behavior of of some assholes stops people from being assholes. But that's
1: Yeah, so I think The issue about um, whether you hold the posters or the platforms liable can get a little nuanced because first, there is some difficulty with holding the individual posters accountable. So Mm -hmm. um, actually, the subject of my next book is a history of anonymity in the United States. The First Amendment right of anonymity from the Federalist Papers all the way to the more current debates about John Doe subpoenas and Tor, and right. there there are a few barriers to holding the posters accountable. Uh, some some of it is technological. So if someone is properly using some anonymizing technology, or if they're posting from a public space or an account that they don't own, it might be difficult to track them down. Um, and the other issues will become even if you can track them down some courts will prevent it by applying this sort of qualified first amendment protection for their identity so that's one issue um another issue is that the platforms while they don't most platforms i wouldn't say all but most platforms don't contribute to or encourage the uh the precise harmful content but they can be used to weaponize the harm more than if they didn't exist. And I think that's a very real issue. I think uh, the Herrick versus Grinder case, Mm -hmm. um, that's a case where an individual, uh, a guy, his ex-boyfriend wanted to basically get revenge on him and uh, went on to this uh, dating app and basically got all of, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of people to go to this man's home and work demanding sex and basically suggesting that even if he says no, he really does want it. And, uh, it it was a real threat to his safety. Now, um, the issue with sort of the platform responsibility is that had this not been over a platform, it could never have spread so quickly. Now, what to do about it is a different question. Um, do you uh, do you impose certain standards of responsibility on the platforms? Do you prevent them from transmitting the user content altogether? Those are those are all really difficult questions uh, that I think have to be looked at. But also, we we need to consider if we were to impose this responsibility, what what impact would it have? on other platforms? And what impact would it have on user speech? And there's no easy answers to these questions. These are really hard questions um, that really get to our societal values. Um, Do we value the right to free expression, uh, and versus uh, the right to individual security and privacy? Uh, Europe has come out in one way on this debate. And I think we're sort of in a holding pattern in the United mm-hmm. States as to where we're, where we come out.
0: Yeah, and and I think that's it's really important. It is something that I've been trying to to highlight more and more on tech Radio, Are sort of the um, you know I, I even argue against people who call them difficult choices. I, I call them impossible choices. Yeah. Right? Because no matter what you do, there are trade offs and. Um, you know, somebody is not going to be happy with, with the end result uh, Absolutely. Of, the, of the trade-offs. Um, and that's what makes it so challenging. Um, you know, and, and I I am a very, very strong CDA 230 supporter uh, because I think that the benefits of it greatly outweigh um, the alternatives. But I, I recognize that there are some people who end up um, – not in the best position thanks to thanks to the way that the law is is set up absolutely um, so one one question that and I know that that the book focuses on the twenty six words which are section c one um one thing that sort of interested me is. Um, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but not exactly, it's like how little uh, attention C2 gets uh, and actually how C2 almost gets no attention at all and and there are very few, if any, court cases about C2. Um,
1: Yeah, so I think the reason we don't see all that many C2 cases is because it's just a lot easier for courts to deal with the cases under C1 because C1 is just such a broad immunity that... You do see some C two cases, but right. uh, but but it's just a lot simpler, and there often are some moderation claims weaved in with some general content claims.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think part of the reason why I wonder about that is because like the. Uh, and there is no general perception of CDA 230. Most people don't know about it, but But uh, among people who do talk about it, there's often this belief that the thing about CDA 230 is that it encourages platforms not to moderate at all. And you know, the thing that I always point out is, you know, the whole point of C2 is actually the opposite of that, right? It was to encourage companies to feel free to moderate. I mean, that's why the, the Stratton-Oakmont decision was so concerning. The reason why Prodigy uh, got into trouble was because it was trying to, to set up a family-friendly platform that involved some level of, of moderation. Um, and so I always sort of try and remind people of C2 existing and the the sort of pushback on that is, yeah, but, you know, no nobody ever pays attention to c two and it never it almost never comes up in in any court rulings. Um, and so it's it's you know I, i've I just sort of I've wondered about that a little bit, but I,
1: yeah, I, I was actually just at a, I just spoke at a book forum about the book at the Cato Institute today, and there was uh, a question I think it was the inevitable question of uh, wasn't section two thirty intended to uh, Make the platforms be uh, politically neutral. Uh, this is mm-hmm. obviously the question that's coming up <laughs> in Congress. Yeah. And I, I said no. I mean, you look at C two, and that's exactly the opposite of what C two right. says. It says you can you can filter out anything that you deem objectionable. Um, so, I mean, the, the, that that specifically allows. The platforms to make choices. You know, if I if, if I want to block all of one political viewpoint or another, that's actually permitted under Section two hundred and
0: thirty. Yeah, and indeed, somewhat encouraged. Yes, um, though you know, I don't think they were thinking of it in terms of blocking out uh, political viewpoints, sure. but but you know, anything else. So yeah, it is it is sort of um, it is sort of interesting the way two hundred and thirty is sort of being reflected, especially among. Uh, politicians these yes. days. <laughs> um, so, well, let, let's talk a little bit about, um, uh, well, we didn't really talk, well, it was, I, so I guess I was going to ask about FOSTA, but we'll go back to that in a second. But let's talk a little bit about the, some of the cases, the more recent cases that have sort of, you know, uh, pushed back or or poked holes in, in 230, um, because I think, you know, those have become important um, and you talk about roommates and, AccuSearch, which are sort of the, the, the first cases that really began to suggest that, that the, the two hundred and thirty immunity might not be as complete and as absolute as the earlier cases found.
1: Yeah. So, um, I think AccuSearch might've had a bigger impact, but roommates.com is sort of the flashiest case and in part because then judge Kaczynski, uh, used some real flourish in his writing uh, perhaps which, a bit which more he's known than was to do necessary. yes yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, as as i talked about he uh, his earlier opinion is called for the return of the firing squad and the guillotine right. uh completely unnecessary but um he, so roommates.com involved a roommate matching website that basically required its users to state certain preferences that at least uh, some nonprofits alleged violated federal and state housing laws. And the roommates.com decision, I think, has been unfairly represented a bit mm-hmm. as a complete loss for platforms when, in fact, uh, the court divided up the responsibilities into three buckets, uh, the first being whether roommates could be held liable for the questions it asked. and I think that's an easy question of, yes, it could, because that's not third-party content. Those are the right. questions that it's asking. Uh, the more difficult category were um, basically the, the preferences that were developed through its multiple-choice questions. Uh, and Judge Kaczynski said, yes, it can be held liable for that. Uh, but then there also was this free-form section where people really wrote some horrific things about their preferences for race and gender and religion. Uh, for their roommates and the, what, what the court said is that, um, that is something that's protected by section Two Thirty uh, because that's third party content and, right. um, th- the, but, but roommates.com has been held to stand for more than I think it actually does. Uh, yeah. AccuSearch was a little different. AccuSearch was this website that basically contracted out with third parties to research, some fairly private information about outgoing and incoming cell phone calls, for example. Um, and what the, uh, what the 10th circuit said was that that's not something that's protected by section 230 because, um, they went a bit further and said that, um, there was this encouragement uh, and this uh, by by the platform by connecting these two, and it was this experience where someone really didn't know necessarily know unless they read the terms of service that they were going to a third party. They just kind of thought they were getting the information from AccuSearch. So those were cases in which the courts, to varying degrees, said that platforms that actually help in the development of the content are not going to be protected by Section 230.
0: Yeah. And and I'll say I mean I was actually one of the people who was was upset and nervous about the roommates decision in particular and I I wrote about how concerned I was but over time I've recognized I was probably wrong on that also and and I actually think that the way the court laid out the decision in 230 has, and sorry in roommates about you know which content 230 protects and which content it doesn't, um, it's actually been pretty useful, right? Because you can lay out the fact that, you know, if the platform itself has effectively developed the content. Um, then it has a liability for that, which makes sense. Um, it's, you know, it, and then, but it also is clear that the content that it doesn't develop, um, it's it's not liable for that under 230. And I've actually found that to be a pretty useful standard. And especially in explaining to people who don't fully understand 230, being able to point to the roommate's case and explain the difference between the different types of content um, is something that, that I've found at least helps people understand, you know, where and why 230 actually applies. um, Even though I was not happy with the decision when it first came down. Yes. Yeah. Um, So so now let's talk a little bit about FOSTA, uh, which is sort of the first um, perhaps, of many (laughs) uh, attempts to to sort of chip away at 230 and to amend 230. Um, And so we've talked a lot about that law in the podcast and on the site over the years, so people are at least somewhat familiar with it. Um, You testified during the hearings around it, correct? I did, yes. And so what, what was your take on, on FOSTA as an attempt to sort of you know, create this, this exception to, to 230 around uh, sex trafficking and um, uh, both in, in a civil context partly in, and somewhat for state laws, for state criminal laws as well?
1: Well, so so the real impetus for FOSTA was this uh, First Circuit case where uh, there were uh, sex trafficking victims who had been trafficked when they were 15 years old who sued Backpage. And the First Circuit kind of very grudgingly said Section 230 applies and immunizes Backpage. Uh, I think part of the problem is that uh, FOSTA... should not have even been necessary because I don't think Backpage should have been immune under Section 230. Uh, part of the problem was that all of the facts in the record were not out yet. Uh, There's a mm-hmm. really damning Senate investigative report that I go through in the book in uh, detail that show a lot of steps that Backpage uh, yeah. had taken um, in sort of the in, in these advertisements. Uh, there was a Washington Post article. And the other problem, and this gets a little in the weeds, but I don't think that the plaintiffs made the best argument in opposition to the motion to dismiss. They focused entirely on whether um, their claims treated Backpage as the publisher or speaker of content, which is one way to get around Section 230. Uh, they really should have focused on the development of the content, and they said, you know, right. we we need to gather more facts. And so, I think it, it was just not it, it it was not a good case. But I, I think overall, it should not have come out that way, but it did. And I think part of the problem problem that we had with FOSTA and CESTA is um, it was partly the initial response of the tech community or the mm-hmm. the tech companies. Um, I don't think that they treated it with the gravity that which just the I don't think they recognized the serious nature, necessarily of this issue, they treated it like another technology policy issue. But mm-hmm. in fact, this was very different. This was miners being sold on the internet. Right. And they treated it in the book, I say they treated it kind of like net neutrality. Um, and so so the initial I, I, I think that and this was kind of in this general climate of uh, political change for the platforms where they're suddenly not the darlings of Capitol Hill anymore. And now they're suddenly um, kind of opposing this uh, legislation without I, I don't think without offering any alternatives and without mm-hmm. explaining be- better explaining why an alternative wouldn't even be necessary um and i think that by the time i testified in october of 2017 uh it it had gone so downhill that that i that and the a a number of the tech platforms were still just saying this is going to be cataclysmic and um i i thought there could be a solution where we could where congress could really address the, the very real concerns. Uh, again, mm-hmm. I, I I think that this this was some something incredibly serious. Um, so my preference would have been to have an exception to Section Two Thirty that uh, has, that's based on intent, which is a very high standard. But I right. also think Backpage would have clearly fit fallen into it because I don't want to leave any illusions. I thought Backpage should be sued. I, I right. and I'm I, I'm thrilled that they were shut down because uh, they, were, they were not serving. <laughs> they so, Some might say they were helping law enforcement by having this public platform, but I think based on the Senate report, I have no issues with saying that, you, you know, I, I, I would have no problem with Backpage being exempt from Section 230 um what resulted however was um i think eric goldman calls it the worst in both worlds um right bill that i i mean i'm i'm not going to in a podcast get into it it was hard enough to get it to even <laughs> put it in the book because it's these exceptions to exceptions and different yeah. standards and and i i think i mean when i even talk with platforms about it they still don't know what yeah. what, what it imposes and so they're going to err on the side of caution and shut down certain services. And we've seen that, that for example, with Craigslist shutting down its personal ads. Yep. Um, I personally don't think Craigslist necessarily needed to shut down its personal ads, but I also completely understand why a lawyer advising Craigslist would shut down its personal ads, because e- even if ultimately they would not be liable, I wouldn't want to take the chance of having to litigate all those cases.
0: Right. And
1: uh, th- and I think that's the real chilling effect that you have to deal with. When you pass an exception to Section 230 that has this fairly confusing set of standards of accountability, I don't think anyone quite knows how to deal with it. And I think that really can be instructive for future attempts to amend Section 230.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, and I think that's important. It's also worth noting that, you know, you mentioned Backpage being shut down, right? So one thing that Section 230 does not apply to is federal criminal law. And Backpage, importantly, was shut down, the site was seized, and the founders were arrested before uh, SESTA-FOSTA was signed into law, just a couple days before SESTA-FOSTA was signed into law, though, the supporters of SESTA-FOSTA seemed to take credit for it, which struck me as a bit bit odd and a bit premature but um yeah and it sort of created this mess and and somebody else pointed out recently that even though sesta fosta has now been the law for a year it's unclear if it's ever actually been used um despite all these claims that it was necessary yes Um, so there's some 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 interesting things there so to sort of round out this podcast you know section 230 i mean you the, the as i said the book is great and it really makes the case of why it's been so important but also many of the the challenges and and many of the trade-offs associated with it um you know what in an ideal world what do you what do you think should happen in terms of you know as 230 as people are examining it and questioning it and and perhaps challenging it what what do you think would be what would be the ideal way forward so i, I...
1: I I hate to say this because it really could create more problems down the road, but I think it has to be looked at on a case by case basis. Mm -hmm. And looking at, well, I guess first off, I think the ideal situation would be the platforms would uh, better address the critics, which I don't know if it's even possible because (laughs) there's so many. First, there's it's not just one platform. So, I mean, you have Google, you have Facebook, but you also have pinterest you have something called twitch that my students talk about but i still don't quite (laughs) understand it i don't know why you watch people play video games but that's something that people like to do but uh all and and you have a lot of thoughtful uh moderation practices that are occurring and i don't think that story is necessarily told and i especially for some of the smaller platforms but so if that were to fail so in my ideal world the, there would just be peace and harmony and the platforms would take responsibility <laughs> and everyone w- would be happy with that. That's never going to happen because there's no. never going to be perfect moderation. So I think we need to look at each individual harm and say, okay, how, how do we deal with this? And is there a way to narrowly address it? So we have wh- while not chilling other speech. Um, now, what I think is a, would be more dangerous is just saying, well, let's just repeal section 230 and see what happens. Right. Um, that I think we, I, I think we, we need to, to take a really close look at what, what will be the second, third, fourth order impacts of that. Um, and be, before doing it, doing that. So, I mean, I think it, it's very odd that you had this is the one area where there's bipartisan agreement in D.C. is that everyone wants to get rid of Section 230. <laughs> um, when you have uh, Nancy Pelosi and Ted Cruz agreeing on something, it's yeah. pretty remarkable. But yeah. what, what I'd like to hear is what next. Yeah, and I don't know what the next is after that. Yeah, um, I mean, do you do you rep- replace it? Do you repeal it all together and that's it? Do you replace it with something saying that there's a notice-based system? Uh, like some actually thought Section 230 was intended to be back before Zarin. I I don't know. But I, I think we need to have that what's next conversation.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You know, I've sort of joked about the fact that there's now sort of bipartisan support uh, against 230. Um, but for, but the funny thing is, of course, it's for very, very different reasons, right? I mean, yeah. you know, you have the... The uh, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley side of things or Louis Gohmert as well, who argue, as as the commenter said to you at the Cato event, um, that they believe there's some sort of neutrality requirement uh, built into 230, which doesn't actually exist, Um, which is also a little bit ironic since they pretty much all those same people have argued that net neutrality as a concept is evil. And yet suddenly they want some sort of weird platform neutrality. But anyways, that's. Side commentary, where <laughs> whereas the uh, you know the Democratic concerns about two thirty from Nancy Pelosi and a little bit from like Elizabeth Warren um, tend to be more focused on arguing that the platforms are not doing enough to 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 moderate content, and so it, it raises all different issues. So, um, I mean, I, I I you know I tend to to side with just keep 230 and don't please don't ship away at it anymore Um, I think that that, you know recognizing that there are some trade-offs there and that there are some problems with it but I kind of see almost every other idea um, the trade-offs ending up much worse you know for everyone in the long run but you know I I, I am on the extreme side of that (laughs) that argument (laughs) (laughs) And, and I certainly recognize um other other viewpoints on it but it will be interesting because no matter what we're definitely going to be fighting over this for for a long long time um and you know a lot of people will make an argument that that you know maybe there is a uh, a solution that involves a notice uh, kind of system but you know to me i look at the we have the direct comparison right now between CDA 230 and on the copyright side DMCA 512 which does, because CDA does not cover intellectual property uh, and then we have you know the DMCA which effectively creates a, a similar setup but does have a notice and takedown provision and then i will point you to the massive amounts of abuse of yeah. that of that provision to take down any kind of content um that that people don't like um and you know when you have any sort of notice provision that leads to content being taken down it will be abused and so i do worry about the the impact of that any any i mean in the same way that like um, since the roommate's case and since the AccuSearch case like every 230 case you know mentions those cases or the Barnes case or any of these cases as basically arguments for why 230 couldn't possibly apply in their situation they're almost always wrong um, but everyone will look for the exception and try to make use of it uh, and so I, I I worry about though I uh, I guess that hasn't happened with Foster though uh, we haven't seen that show up in in, in lawsuits so who knows yeah yeah, I,
1: I I think part of the chilling effect isn't necessarily the lawsuits that actually get litig- litigated, yeah. but it, it's the company's anticipation of these lawsuits. I mean, yeah. I, I can tell you from having represented a lot of companies, I... If, if there wasn't Section 230 or if it was scaled back, I, w- I would advise them, you know, you, you've you got to be really cautious about this user content. And that, depending on who you ask, that might be good or it might be bad. But I think we have to face the reality that that the one of the biggest uh, impediments to speech in a Section 230 free world is going to be the company's risk aversion. Yeah.
0: Sure, sure. Yeah. And and um Yeah, I mean, you know, like, I don't know that we would have comments. We would probably have to shut down our comments if there was a full 230 repeal. Yeah, you guys, Um, I definitely would need to. (laughs) Is that a a commentary on the comments on Twitter? No, I don't want to to get into your – I love your commenters. No, 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 no. That's great. That's great. Um, but yeah, and and like you know, and the, you know what's interesting, of course, is you know after FOSTA, a bunch of companies did make changes, but none of them basically would say it was because of FOSTA. I mean, I mean, Craigslist sort of said that, but but a lot of other companies made changes, but but never would admit whether or not it was because of that. You know, I mean, Tumblr yeah. made a massive change to you know which content they would allow, and they took down a whole bunch of content that they argued was too. You know, risque in some sense or another, and many people felt that it was probably because of FOSTA. But but um, you know, Tumblr's many different parent companies, yes. <laughs> depending on how high up you go, Yahoo, AOL, Verizon, whatever, uh, wouldn't wouldn't actually comment on that, um, and so you don't really know. But it could certainly be an example of the kind of chilling effects created by something like FOSTA. So. Um. yeah so th- this is this is obviously a really interesting topics one that I'm obviously also very very interested in um, so uh, as I said to you before we, we got started I could talk about this forever <laughs> Likewise, as my students
1: can attest so. uh,
0: yeah but I'm not sure I'm not sure our listeners want yeah. to listen to it forever <laughs> so, so I, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, cut it off here though though uh, I am very interested in your next book as well anonymity uh, and, and questions around that and 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 how anonymity works online is something else that I'm also very very interested in and very passionate about and have lots of opinions about Excellent. so I'm <laughs> e- excited to 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 hear that that's what you're working on next and uh and and hopefully we can have you back on again when that book is is finally out though I assume it's not for a while It's going it? to be a few years yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, but anyways uh, uh, again uh, for folks who are interested I, I really really recommend checking out the book um, it is uh, uh, it's called the 26 words that created the internet by Jess Kasuf, uh, Jeff Kasov. I stumbled over your name I apologize uh, <laughs> and uh, it's you know it's, it is a really really engrossing readable book and it gets into all sorts of details if you don't know anything about CDA 230 um, then it's totally worth it if you do it is still totally worth it because because you you know between going deep into the details and you know interviewing many of the actual people involved in this stuff, there's there's lots of new stuff and lots of really interesting stuff, and also frankly just putting it all together into a single book um, where you can sort of see it all together um, is really really useful in sort of uh, giving you a level perspective in terms of viewing how Section Two Thirty came to exist and and how it works. Uh, which I think is a really valuable contribution. So um thank you very much for for writing the book. Uh it, it it's really excellent and uh thank you very much for taking time to join the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me. All
0: right, and thanks for everyone for listening and we'll be back next week.